Welcome to The Millionaire's Lawyer, where you'll hear leading professionals share expert advice on how to grow your business and sell it for maximum profitability. If you want to learn lawyer-proven strategies for building and exiting your business, then this is the podcast for you. Your host, J.P. McAvoy, is a business lawyer, college professor, and best-selling author who has been assisting clients start, grow, and sell their businesses for millions of dollars for over 15 years. Will yours be the next? Now here's your host, J.P. McAvoy. On today's show, we have a real treat. I'm excited on today's episode of The Millionaire's Lawyer to have Cheryl Hodson on. She's an author, speaker, fellow lawyer, counsel to entrepreneurs. She has clients all over the world from coaches, authors, music, technology, publishers, fashion and natural food brands, online entrepreneurs, entertainers. She's really done it all. Uh, We've been working together for a couple of common clients, and she has just put out her book, The Registered Trademark, The Business Owner's Guide to Brand Protection. Cheryl, how are you today? I'm wonderful. Thank you. So nice to be here. So great to have you on. So, I mean, we have to start with the book. I think it was two days ago, the book launch, and you're now on your book promotion tour. How's that going? It's going great. I'm having the most fun with this. It's a whole new world, right? I've never done a book launch before. To get the, I mean, I mean, you've been doing this for, for a while, obviously, the brand side of things. And uh, obviously, we want to get into that uh, today. You put a lot of that into the book and a lot of the things that business owners need to think about when they're developing a brand. What are some of the key things that you like to, that you launch you with when you talk about launching a brand for somebody? Well, I think the most important thing, and this is why I wrote the book, what I've seen, because I've, you know, I've been a trademark lawyer for more years than I'm willing to admit <laughs> at this point. But, you know, I was a litigator for years, and I still do some, as little as possible. But um, what I learned by watching the things that would happen to my clients, or I'd see the situations they were in that caused them to have to go to court, would be that they somewhere along the way didn't get the right advice, or they didn't, they skipped some steps in the process of protecting themselves. Yeah. And so they would either file for the wrong thing, not file at all. And so, the most important thing I think is the counseling part and the strategy before you file. And it doesn't necessarily mean it's complex. It just means you have to, there's some thoughtful things that you need to do before you try to protect your brand. Yeah. Um, and I think, and I think one of right. the bigger part to get it right. Yeah. 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 And then one of the other things I think is that uh, the other big mistake is or challenge is having counseling clients, especially startups to understand that a lot of the times they choose a name, they can't register at all. Right. And um, over 30,000 applications a year in the U.S. are rejected because they're descriptive. And you can't register a descriptive term. You know, describing what you do should be a tagline or it should be, uh, it's, that's, that's for marketing. It's not your brand name. And so that, that's where people need a little, instruction. They need some help. That's right. They need some help. So what, what does make a good name or what makes a good for, makes, makes for a good brand? Uh, you know, it, it's not easy to pick a great name. It's, it's takes some real mental gymnastics, I think nowadays, especially, but um, well, there's this little thing called the trademark continuum, which I share in the book, but the most important thing is to pick something that's distinctive and hopefully memorable. And so again, it goes back to this issue and I harp on this a lot, like a broken record, but it's such a common problem, which is not to 
it, people like pick terms that are like in their industry, like something that's like a common prefix, suffix in the name of their brand. And they think it sounds great, but it, it means it's weak. And so something that's distinctive and memorable is something where you stand out from the crowd. That's mm-hmm. the entire point of a brand. So, I mean, the two strongest kinds of trademarks and brand names you can come up with are either something that's a totally made up name that didn't exist. And probably Xerox is the most famous example of that. Uh, Kodak used to be until they blew it. You know? um, and my favorite all times, a trademark, it's a co- what we call a coined or uh, it's a term, it's made up, it didn't exist, is the Altoids Mints. Do you guys have those oh, up yeah. in yeah, Canada? Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah. And you know, that's one of the oldest trademarks in the world. It goes back to the 1800s. I mean, that's been in continuous use. Huh, Since I didn't the know 1800s. That. And yeah. And, the, and so it's, they have no competition because they made up a name and they own it, right? Yeah. And, and uh, so I love to give that as an example. And the other great ones can be what's called an arbitrary mark, which is taking an ordinary everyday term and applying it arbitrarily to a product or service which is totally unrelated. So a good example is apple. There's no better example in the world because an apple is a fruit is generic and not registrable or protectable. But when applied to computers and music, it's what we call an arbitrary mark because you apply it arbitrarily. Another favorite of mine is diesel, Mm -hmm. uh, which is a diesel engine for an automobile or a truck is generic, but diesel for uh, clothing like a line of clothing is a great brand name. So that's, I mean, that's really interesting, Cheryl, when you say, uh, I wouldn't have thought Apple or Diesel would be great brand names at all. You're saying they are. And I guess uh, the trademark protection there is by virtue of the arbitrariness. I understand that. And they've really just had to spend money then to develop the brand or advertise the brand, right? So it's two different things, the trademark uh, protection itself, and then where you spend money to develop the brand, right? Um, That's true. But they can overlap, and that goes to that my issue of why I am such a proponent of trying to dissuade entrepreneurs from launching a brand if they can avoid it that's descriptive. Because the reason why is a descriptive term, at least in the U.S., and it's pretty much that way around the world, if a term describes the quality, characteristics, or ingredients of the product or service you're selling, Mm -hmm. then it's not going to qualify for registration. But in the United States, at least, there's something that's called the supplemental register, which I call it rehab for bad brands. <laughs> that's where they have to go to be put in rehab, right? But it's still a misnomer because, and this is getting legal, maybe a little legal for the ordinary person, but it, here's the point. It's very important. A mark that is distinctive from the get-go, like Altoids or Apple, is you don't have to prove that it's distinctive for what you're using it for. You, it, they, they allow you to register it because as long as there's no one else using it for what you want to register it for, mm-hmm. then you're going to qualify for registration. But when you get to a descriptive term, a descriptive term can go on this thing called the supplemental register for five years. And then at the end of five years, you can say, well, I've acquired distinctiveness. And they will move you up to the big boy register. But it doesn't really mean anything because when you go to enforce the mark and if you have any problems whatsoever, 
you have a standard of proof in order to win a case if you had to sue somebody mm-hmm. that is going to make it so cost prohibitive the average company cannot enforce it. One of the little examples I give is, um, and it wasn't a major case, but it caught my attention a few years ago, um, is there was a company called American Blinds who tried to sue Google over the use of the Google AdWords, right? Because Google auctions off trademarks to your competitors. That's a whole nother discussion. But they will allow, um, they'll allow somebody to bid and pay for a trademark as yep. a keyword, yep. right? And Google has been sued maybe two dozen times and they outspend every person who sues them to such a degree that they've never had a case ruling against them because no one can ever afford to take it to trial. That's just their strategy. But in the meantime, the courts have said that if your competitor buys your trademark and uses it against you to, to advertise their services, you can go after them. Right. So anyway, in this case, American Blinds tried to sue Google. And the problem was their trademark, they'd used it for 25 years, but it didn't matter because they couldn't prove that it acquired secondary meaning. There's a term called acquired distinctiveness or secondary meaning, which means I have to go out and do a half a million to a million dollar survey and talk to people on the street and say, if you hear the word American Blinds, who do you think of? Right. Yeah. And and if you can't prove that, you can't enforce it. And the greatest case, and actually I write about this in my book because it's a much more current example, is, is the fight over the trademark for iPad. Because iPad. that was a, that was very descriptive. And there was a company, there is a company that actually has prior rights to the word, to the term iPads in the US. But I talk about them in my little book, which is that I, they made the fatal mistake that many young companies make is they didn't invest in a trademark. So they were relying on just common law rights. And then what use they did have was horrible. And then, of course, Apple came along and tried to register it. And they tried to stop Apple from registering it. And they had, you know, a multi-million dollar case at the trademark office. And Apple won because Apple proved we have secondary meaning because Apple's can do anything. And in five minutes, the whole world knows what it is, right? Yeah. So they were able to win, but the case was almost comical because both of them had a really bad name, right? And it's like two people fighting over a worthless name, right? The only reason why Apple won is because Apple could spend billions to turn it into something. But the average, the average business owner is not, doesn't have those resources. So you can't count on that as a way to build your brand. At least I don't think so. Oh yeah, you know it's, it's like it's like trying to climb uphill. You know, you're you're yeah. always fighting against the tide. Yeah, and so you need to be strategic. Uh, I like, uh, and I want to turn back to something you just said, and I say this to clients as well. A trademark, it's actually an asset of of a business, and uh, as you said, it's important to invest in the trademark, isn't it? Uh, and so, tell us what what that involves. Or you're working with a client early stage, right? Uh, uh, or earlier in the process where you're saying to them, hey, it's important to, to make sure we're protecting this asset. I know as a corporate lawyer, when I'm going to sell the business, the, that trademark is an asset if they've developed it. And you know when, you're, when they're going in and talking about protecting it, that it's an asset that can grow in value. So what are you doing? What are you, what are you talking to them about in terms of the investment itself and the process? What does it look like? Well, what I like to do is, number one, is after all these years of doing it, what I think is the number one obstacle for 
younger entrepreneurs sometimes is mindset. Um, they One would say that it is in their own mind. They often come to me and it's like, well, it's financial, right? Well, I don't want to spend the money or I can't afford to do this. Well, yeah, but this is a fundamental asset of your business. Are you going into it to be successful or are you going into it to fail? <laughs> and I mean, to be honest, and uh, so it's like, Yes, it's, a, it's like buying an insurance policy. Hopefully, you put it away and you don't ever need it, right? But, you know, I will tell you, and you just alluded to this, and, you know, when the clients I've seen over that I've worked with that started out small with maybe one trademark, I have one client that bought a small old company here that was founded in 1972, and they were in a very unique field. It's like they're the engineer's resource for thousands of parts of Things that's used in microwave devices all over the world on mm-hmm. battleships and all kinds of things all over the world, but um, they they now are registered and protected in forty countries around the world, and they have I don't know we have probably and then they've bought six or eight companies and now they have bought up the world. Well, I will tell you for sure, the investment bankers and the funds that have invested in that them as they've made grown bigger and bigger with more acquisitions, the number one thing they want to know is what is your intellectual property? Mm. They don't care about it. I'm sure they are interested in the inventory, but they're buying into the IP because that's what an investor or a purchaser wants to know is if I'm going to buy this company or if I'm going to invest in your company, what is it I have to look to as an asset? So the trademarks fall into that category of intellectual property which along with patents and trade secrets, customer lists, their confidential information, mm-hmm. all of that's intellectual property. That, but the, there's something psychological too. It's not just having the registration. There's also not just a legal benefit, but there's a psychological impact because investors want to know what, what do you own? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. What is it that the company owns? What's what's being protected, right? Uh, what are the assets? Well, yeah. Well, how's my investment going to be protected? You know what I mean? In other words, in, you know, somebody particularly, let's say you're a startup and, you know, you don't have a lot of money at the beginning. So maybe I would counsel them, look, let's just get one basic registration. And, um, you know, I love the example of this fashion brand I represent because I happen to enjoy working with them. They're fabulous, two young women, and they had a brand early in their, like in their 20s, and it was majorly successful. And they had some problems with a partner and who turned out to not necessarily be the most honest, apparently. And um, so they ended up divesting that and, in fact, losing their names or giving up their their names. And so that brand is still in the market. But they, launched because they had been so successful they actually attracted a new round new investors and they relaunched with a whole new brand name about six or eight years ago well because of what they went through before the first time in in their first experience in business they came into the new one with a separate different mindset right which is we know we need to protect this so every single thing is they they are on it. You know what I mean? Are they really, so we counsel, I counsel them. It's not just, you know, oh, I just need to get this done. And, you know, how much is it going to cost me? And I, I, you know what I mean? They care about the value proposition Mm -hmm. and what it means to the security of what they're doing. 
And there's and here's another factor. There's certain fields where it's foolish to launch a business without it. Right. I mean, in other words, if it's one thing if you're a service brand, but if you're investing in product and inventory that is going to be branded and shipped in to the marketplace, why on earth would somebody spend up to $100,000 to launch a physical product or more and not spend a few thousand dollars, two or three or four, whatever it takes to protect the name of the product. Right. Because if you get a cease and desist letter, then you've lost the $100,000 and you have to start over. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. As you say, you've got to think of of the value. What's the value proposition here? So let's, let's give an example or or, uh, maybe cite one from your own practice. Uh, These two designers would be a great example, but somebody that's, that's got something and uh, you know, they were listening to this podcast. They realized they need to protect it. You know, how would they work with you? How would they, what would, what does the process look like? Just take a look, take the listener. Well, through normally that. I, normally what I do just from a counseling standpoint is I schedule and sit down with somebody and have to do a consultation, like mm-hmm. an intake consultation, mm-hmm. but it's not like a 15 minute, you know, this is like, I need an, an hour. I need an hour to understand what their business is. Cause one of the most challenging things for me as a professional wanting to help somebody do it right is when if someone calls me and goes, well, just tell me how much it's going to cost to do this. Well, like, how could I possibly tell you? Because I don't know what you're doing. Right. <laughs> I, I, I mean, I know what I charge my fees are to actually file it, which is very reasonable, but it depends on the categories. It depends on whether you're using it. It depends on whether you haven't used it, right? Because those are two different processes in the United States, at least. Um, <clears throat> and you may need one category. You may need five right? Um, And then there's the question of searching. And that's the other cost factor that goes into it is, you know, it's how much does it cost to actually do a search, Mm -hmm. you know, because uh, one of the challenging things is the U.S. trademark office website is good, but it's the, the search engine for searching what's already been registered is very challenging. It's an older technology and it's not that easy to find things. So this third party companies that I rely on, most attorneys use either Thompson CompuMark or CoreSearch. Those are the 200-pound gorillas, and there are mm-hmm. a few other smaller ones. Mm-hmm. But they have been doing it for 40, 50, 60 years. So they are the companies that search all over the world. And they have databases and platforms and, you know, but that's the starting place is to know, make sure that you know, but again, it goes back to what we were talking about. If you pick, if you've made up a name, you're much less likely to have a problem in terms of a search. Right. In fact, I, I'll, I'll give you an example. We have a friend, you and I have a mutual colleague in, in our podcast world, and she's someone who had launched a fashion brand. Right. I'm not a fashion brand, excuse me, a skincare line. Yep. And had not registered it and went to register it. We went to register it. And guess what? I did the search and somebody else already had the name. It had one letter spelling difference, but it was the same products, you know, so she had to change her name. Um, But then she's launched. Now her mindset has changed as well. And she's launching something else. And we had a great conversation yesterday and she's come up with a name that's, it's an acronym, but it's something totally unique. And I mean, that took me less than five minutes to go to the trademark office. I know that there's not going to be a problem for her registering that name because it's so unique, right? It's not something where you have a common word 
you know, you pick the word eternal, you pick the word infinite, you have some kind of like laudatory term in a trademark, and there'll be 15,000 references <laughs> with that word in it. So yes. that's not that easy to search, you know, to yeah, go through and, narrow, and to narrow right. down 15,000 references. Yeah, that's right. And it's the same, you know, I do the same thing as we're naming businesses, you know, the same, same, uh, you know, there's a similar registration, similar search and registration process to ensure that you obviously you have rights to that name once it's uh, finally registered. For you, you're doing this not just, uh, you know, not just in the U.S., but around the world. How For, you know, the, okay, actually, let's continue through that process because you've talked to somebody and said, okay, let's search it first. Uh, and then, uh, obviously, uh, the search reveals that, uh, or it appears as though the name will be available for registration. What do you do then next? What's the next step? Well, then we sit down and make a plan. And what I always tell people is how do you eat an elephant one bite at a time, you know? Mm. Um, because I talk, the way I talk about it is I call call it the little brand dream team, which is, you know, if you're really going to look at, I love Nike as a great example. Okay. It's a teaching and an an instructional tool, which is, and there's many other examples, but Nike is one that's universally known. The word Nike is one of their trademarks. And then they have the phrase, just do it. Mm -hmm. And then they have the composite where they put the two together. And then they have the swoosh, the, the Nike swoosh. swoosh. That's right. And, you know, I mean, I think that was, they, they were a startup. And I actually researched at one point the history. And it was done by us. That was all drawn and designed by somebody who was a Portland State University design student mm-hmm. back in the 70s. Mm-hmm. So I'm sure at that point, when Phil Knight launched his running shoe company, he didn't have a lot of money either, and he probably didn't spend a lot of money for all of that. But at least he did it, they did it correctly. In other words, they got the elements. And now what I like to say is once as that brand became famous, and now you can see the swoosh by itself. You can see the um, just do it by itself, or you can see them all in combination, and they use it all these different ways, and you, you know exactly who it is. Right. Right, because they've those elements are I call members of the brand dream team. So then, you know, but then those can be up to four different trademark applications. So if somebody is starting out, they may feel as if, well, I can't do all of that at once. Okay, well, let's get your main brand. Let's register your version of Nike and or your logo. You know, and then it may be a year from now or two years from now, you come back to me and you go, hey, we're going to launch in Europe. Or I've got distributors now in Canada. We need to protect up in Canada, right? So at that point, what I like to say is let's start small and make a budget. And then we can make a plan. Yep. Have a plan. Have a plan. Figure, you know, you know, plan the gradual growth of a company as, as it evolves. That's like in anything else. Uh, a company needs to think about what its growth strategy is. And one of them is to invest in trademark protection. Well, and you know what, the, that going back to that electronics company, that was a perfect example because, um, you know, I remember specifically when I first started working with them, budget was not so much of a concern for them. But even then, when, with the, when they started expanding internationally, uh, we made a budget. So I would, I sit down and people say, well, why does it cost so much? Well, because I have to sit down and make a spreadsheet and actually get price quotes from different countries. Because I, as a lawyer, no lawyer can file trademarks in every country in the world. Mm-hmm. You have to have an affiliate of 
of other attorneys that we rely on. And I know generally what it costs, but again, it comes back to if you're selling one item in one category, that's pretty simple. But if you're selling five items in five categories, then 40% of what the fees are going to be are not legal fees, they're filing fees to government agencies, right? right? So then there's currency conversions issues, right? So I have to get the quotes from those lawyers and then convert it and then create what's going to cost. So, you know, that's, that can take, you know, if they're really going to do a a company that's growing, that may take several hours worth of effort and it may be, okay, great. We're going to schedule this out. We're going to do this for this six, this year, and we're going to do the next, next year, next year's budget. And so even larger companies budget these things. It's not just the the startup. Yeah. Yeah, As you say, you're working a plan and you thought it through and you're, and you're working that plan. So if somebody wants to start with sort of one mark uh, in the U S you know, that might be this year's work and how much time, how long does it take? How long does the process itself take? Oh, the process. Well, that's where it gets interesting. Uh, Not interesting, but there are two, remember I mentioned that there's, I know it stuff sounds so technical, but it's pretty straightforward. There's two ways now to file in the U S one is, well, there's actually three, but for purposes of this discussion, you either using it or you're not yet using it. Right. If you're not yet using it, it's called intent to use. I intend to use it. And if you're already selling the product or service, it's in use. So the intent to use process is, I like to say it's a two-step process and it's a little bit more expensive because you're in effect reserving the name right. and, and getting it in line and making certain that no one can come along and knock you out. Right. Your application may not yet be approved, but no, if somebody files after you, they would be denied because right. you're ahead of them. You're already in line, okay? right? Yeah. You're already in line. You have priority of filing. And that's in t- that's, that was added in about 15 or 20 years ago on purpose because you need time to develop your packaging, your marketing plan. And, you know, it takes sometimes a year to get all that stuff lined up for a startup. The other one is, so there's a little bit difference in cost, but the process of examination is the same. You file. It's about five months before, six months before I hear from an examiner. There's over 400 attorneys in the U.S. Trademark Office, and your application gets uh, assigned to one of them, and uh, you just wait until they get to yours based on the order of filing. And then this is the part where people who like to try to, you know, don't understand about the trademark process. Almost 70% of all trademark applications receive a first refusal. Right. So uh, even if you do all the planning we're talking about and we make sure we describe it properly, I counsel, that's one of the other counseling things, by the way, is making sure you're using it properly as a trademark. That's one of the other things I have to spend a lot of time with clients. Well, how do you do going that? Over do you, their, yeah. So what? sidebar. Yeah. So how do you, when you say using it properly, how, what do you mean by that? Well, there's probably about almost a thousand pages of federal regulations on every that the examiners use is something called the trademark manual of examining procedure and it's their bible and you either do everything the way it's said great example is what's called electronic displays we take that for granted now um but a few years ago we didn't which because it was how do you use a trademark on the internet now everybody understands there's a shopping cart and that sort of thing but there's about five years ago, they issued like 
30 pages of regulations just on how you use a trademark in an electronic display on a website in order to qualify as trademark use. Okay. So let's say you're a law firm and you are, you're not selling anything. That's not really a trademark use. It's just what we call an informational website. If you're not advertising and marketing a service or selling a product on the internet, you're not using it as a trademark. It's informational. Okay. But if you have a service that's described, if you want my service for this, you know, or if you are selling a product, you have to have a shopping cart. So it has to be set up. Here's a great example. I had a client out of the UK and a wonderful client, but they kept wanting to use this tagline and they wanted to use it like in their blog post and they'd wait to the very end of the blog post and then they'd put this phrase, right? Now you know is what it was. And it was like, it was so difficult to get them to understand that's not a trademark use because trademark use is it's distinctive. It's what the, the consumer sees that tells them what product or service they're, they're looking at. Well, you, if you bury it at the bottom of a page, that, that's not something they're looking at to think of it as a brand name, right? So that's a silly example, but, you know. No, but it's, a, it's a good one, though. It's a good one. You have to see it. As you say, it's a brand. It's the brand itself. So uh, it would have to be, yeah, something that's recognizable, as you say, that... Uh, makes the consumer understand what the product or service is. Well, that's an important part of, uh, I think we haven't actually touched on that, but it's really important conceptually in, to mention this, that the reason why, at least in the United States, and most of the rest of the world ultimately emulates the U.S. in one form or another, uh, you're not, the protection you're allowed to have is not really for your benefit. If you go back to the philosophy of it, the reason why trademark registration is even permitted, it's protection of the public mm -hmm. because the entire test for whether a mark can be registered or not is likelihood of confusion. And the point of that is we don't want consumers to be deceived. That's right. So if you walk into this restaurant and it's got golden arches and it's called McDonald's and you order a hamburger, whether you like that hamburger or not, hopefully it's going to be consistent whether you buy it in Bozeman, Montana or Florida, right. right? Okay. The consumer has a right to expect when they, that they're going to have a consistency of the quality of goods and services that are sold. And they know okay? who they're dealing with, right? They know who they're dealing with. And who with, they're so, dealing with. Yeah. They're not being deceived. Yeah. And in the old days, before there was an internet, that was actually what would happen. You didn't have the, it, it's totally different threats now, and that's another conversation, but it was what would be called palming off. In other words, the traditional old trademark infringement was pretending to be a newcomer who pretends to be somebody they're not. Right, right, right. Yeah, the imposter, right? Somebody else, yeah, trying the to imposter, oppose somebody yeah. else. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, no, understandable. So, that, good. thanks for that sidebar there. Uh, I just want to uh, continue, I guess, as far along in the process as we can, because we talked about, uh, you know, six months, we get uh, probably that first rejection. You said 70% first filings will receive a rejection. And then there's a process to work through, right? Whatever the rejection might be. Yes. It's a six months to respond to an office action. And I always explain to clients up front, you know, that's where if you get that reject, that's my goal is to maximize the odds of me being able to 
have one of the, the few that goes through with no rejection whatsoever. Wow. There's a lot. And I've had, I get a few, but it's not, there's usually some, even if it's some little administrative thing, there's usually some tweak. But, you know, even if it's just the examiner will write me and go, well, I just need to change this ID a little bit and I'll enter the examiner's amendment. That's great. That's a quick phone call and I got, great, do it. No problem. It can be that or I can get a 20-page rejection. And here's the problem. When the clients skip that, that planning step that I was talking about, here's the areas where they can get rejected. Either the search because there's another mark already registered, as in the case of the skincare line we were talking about, or here's one of the biggest obstacles there are. And even for me as an attorney, and this is where, for me, all the, we say service, have you ever heard of the term service, in terms of like trying to really help people respond, is something called related goods. Right. Uh, okay, so a trademark owner on the positive side, if you own a trademark, you can protect your mark for goods, not only the identical goods, but are related. Mm -hmm. And related goods, by definition, are goods that can be used together. So are related to one another. Great examples are, and these are cases that have actually been litigated, by the way, peanut butter and jelly go together. So you can't have the same brand name or trademark for a jar of jam as you do for a jar of Jiffy peanut butter. Okay. Same for vodka and orange juice. Because wow. screwdriver is such a ubiquitous cocktail, you can't have orange juice with the same label as absolute orange juice would not be allowed. Would not be, a, yeah, wow, okay. Okay, so, but it, where it comes up very, very often is in entertainment issues, Yeah. Um, because you have television, you have film, you have music, you have management, there's just all these different other, and you have to remember, trademark examiners aren't necessarily an expert. Well, of course they're not. They're not an expert in your industry, right? So they will sometimes issue rejections, oftentimes issue rejections and say, well, these are related goods. And those are often difficult to overcome. Doesn't mean you can't, but that's where I have to spend a lot of my time. Right, it's right. either related goods or, again, the other issue we talked about already is your mark is descriptive. And trying to convince them that it's not when it is, is kind of much a losing proposition because they're usually right when they come back. And yeah, and there's your challenge, right? So you, yeah. so you work through the objections uh, with, uh, with an examiner and what's the next stage? So assuming the objections are all overcome, what's the next stage? Oh, then, then it gets approved for publication mm -hmm. and it's, uh, no one really reads it. Well, they do. There's watch services. Actually, these big, same big companies offer what's called watch services. Mm -hmm. And so, but it's published in what's called the official gazette. And every country has their own version of that, where it's called, it's just a period within which anyone who thinks that they may be damaged by that application or that they have prior rights to that name or there could be a confusion is usually allowed to come in and object right. and in the united states it's called filing an opposition proceeding mm -hmm. and there's a separate tribunal and it's not really a court but it's an administrative body called the trademark trial and appeal board and there it's a three panel judges of judges and you file a rather simple pleading um and you, you, you file an opposition. And then most, the vast majority of those do settle. 
But the iPad case we were talking about earlier, that was one of those types of proceedings. And there are some that become very highly contested and get a lot of publicity. That was one of the few. And um, so that's the process. And hopefully you, you don't have a problem and you can make it through that waiting period. And then it just takes a couple of months. So it's about, um, it's about nine months from the time you file, nine months to a year that you would get either a, what's called a notice of allowance, which means you filed the intent to use and you haven't launched. And the notice of allowance from the date it issues is good for six months. And you have six months to either file your proof of use with the right electronic display samples or the right labels, and then pay an additional fee, and then your registration issues. If you've already done it in use, you don't, get a notice of allowance, you actually get the issuance of the registration right, right. after the opposition period. Okay. And uh, then the, the part that I, I, you know, we may get into this, but I just don't want to forget because it's so, so important. And it's where clients, where people really get derailed. As they get the registration, and I have this stupid little saying, but I love it. It's like uh, a file cabinet is not a destination resort for your trademark registration mm-hmm, because mm-hmm. A trademark is a living, existing thing that changes with the marketplace. So it doesn't mean you have to spend a lot of money in legal fees, but you do need to watch the marketplace. It may be as simple as setting up Google Alerts so that you, if somebody ends up using your name, you somehow are watching what's happening. You're knowing. And because where things become a big problem is, as we all know in life, is when you ignore them. Yeah. <laughs> right? You know, when Absolutely. you don't take care of something that's a little problem at the beginning or not a problem at all, but you know, you di- you just didn't pay any attention to it. And that's kind of how the trademark pro- process is. So, I call it enforcement, it, I call it sustaining. I have three words, select, secure, and sustain. Mm-hmm. Go through the selection process, then what is the process for securing it? But then don't forget the third step, because if you want to have a legacy brand and you want something that's going to be of value when you sell your company, you have to sustain it. It's like your car. You got to change the engine oil. You got to wash the car. You got to do some maintenance. Okay. Trademark is not heavy maintenance, but you do have to renew it. You have to, in the US, between years five and six, you have to file proof that you're still using it or they will cancel your registration. And thereafter, every 10 years, you have to. You have to renew it. And you'd be surprised how many people miss that deadline between they have a whole year to do it and then they they don't they don't take care of it. So you have to file that. that. Problem. Yeah. So it's a years yeah. five and six and then in years ten. If uh, uh, and that's to sustain, right? Uh, is what we uh, is what we just summarized there. What if somebody is like I'm sure there are people that are watching those as they expire, somebody jumps on one after the fact. What's uh, what does that process look like? Uh, so they see a trademark that they like and they realize that people have It's filed. free for anybody to it use. Is free that's, for all, why is it? it's, yeah. that's why it that's why that process is there because I mean yeah. we all know the statistics that the vast majority of new companies are not in business three to five years after they launch. Right, right. So I mean, in fairness to the public registry, they have to have some process for purging the roles. Oh, absolutely. Of, yeah, no, you can yeah. understand the reasoning for it. It's gotta be there. Because so, it's uh, called abandonment. I mean, there is yeah. a legal term for it. Yeah. In the United States, it's, I don't know how they judge it in Canada or other countries, but it's probably something similar. In the United States, it's three years of non-use with intent not to resume. 
Okay. So before I would allow a client or recommend that they, uh, they choose an abandoned registration, I usually say, well, we need to at least check and see if you can find them on the internet anywhere. You know, if they're out of business, but if they're still in business and they've missed their deadline, I'm not going to, it's probably not a good idea to go steal their trademark, right? Because they can come in and say, I'm still using it. But if that company doesn't seem to exist anywhere anymore, then the mark has been abandoned and there's no reason why you can't adopt it. Really powerful stuff. Uh, uh, Cheryl, thanks. You're taking us through the process, right? Select, secure, sustain. You give me some sense of the timing. Uh, for putting things into place. And then obviously on a go forward, right? Watching, you know, that's sort of the, certainly that five year mark is a key one. And then it's every 10 years subsequent. Is every, that what you said? Yeah. It's ten, once every 10 years. So, I mean, it's, that's not unreasonable uh, to have to renew it. And then there's another part of this sustaining thing that I think is really, really important. And again, people end up with distributors and they right. end up, especially in foreign countries, and they end up with um, some of them, and I do surprisingly a lot of work with people who start certification courses because I've represented so many authors who have training programs. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And you can't register, and this comes up, by the way, a lot. People think you can, they, you, they wonder the question of, can I register the name of my book? And the answer is no. And the reason why is that in the United States and in most places, a trademark has to be something that is ongoing, continuous mm-hmm. services or goods in this. You're, again, it goes back. It's the flip side of abandonment. Your use has to be continuous. Now, it doesn't mean you can't have some gaps in there. If you have to stop and retool or you have to take the product off the market, you're not going to lose your rights. But you have to have a continuous intent and use over time. Uh, otherwise, that's abandonment. But the problem is if it's a book is a one-time use. Right. So the way you can create trademark rights is in by having a training course or a podcast with mm-hmm. that same name, or it might be products and services that are related, actual tangible products. Um, so those are ways that you can develop rights in, in the trademark. But then what happens is it's very, very important is if you have licensees or affiliates whether it's affiliate marketing or you have distributors overseas, it's really, really important to have guidelines on how they can use the mark. Right. Right. And one of the biggest, biggest, biggest things I have to counsel on clients on, and even corporate lawyers often forget this because Mm -hmm. they'll do the drafting of distribution agreements and they do not include the magic term in that contract that says the licensee and the distributors cannot register any domains containing the trademark. Yeah, kind of important. So, they, yeah, it's all it's being controlled huge. by the parent, right? It's all being controlled by the trademark owner. That's right. They got to reserve it. It has right. to be. It has to be. Because here, and here's the great example. I learned this. Listen, this was years ago. I went to um, Geneva to the World Intellectual Property Organization for. Uh, training and international arbitration of trademark disputes, which is pretty obscure. But one of the most interesting people that spoke was a then young woman attorney for BMW out of uh, Germany. And they, it was staggering to me because this was when the internet had just started. I'm like 19,000 domain names around the world they have to manage. Wow, 19,000, yeah, really. Every distributor in the world that sells BMWs, whether it's Beverly Hills BMW, mm-hmm. 
Toronto BMW, Mm -hmm. Paris BMW, wherever. And not many go out of business, but it does happen. One of those distributors goes bankrupt. One of them, something happens, right? They don't pay for the cars. Well, I don't know what the deal is, but distributorships end up having to be terminated once in a while, right? And, or it could be a franchisee, a licensee, right? So if that distributor has registered a trademark in their local territory or they register the domain, it's easier in the United States. But if they're in, in Indonesia or they're in China, how, how do you get that domain back right. when, you ter- when you terminate the distributorship? Or the license agreement. You have to be in control of it, right? This goes back to the sustaining, right? You need to make sure that you're the one that's uh, um, absolutely in control that's, of that actual mark. And yeah. that's what that's part of the sustaining. And it doesn't mean, by the way, you can't allow them to use the website. I mean, every BMW dealer has their own local website, but the servers point to them locally. But the registration for that domain is controlled by Mama Bear BMW in Germany. That's right. Make sure they have all the control. That's wonderful stuff. Uh, Cheryl, we could talk about this stuff all day, I realize. I know. I know you put a lot of this stuff into the book as well, right? Registered Trademark, The Business Owner's Guide to Brand Protection. How do people find the book and how do people find you? Oh, okay. Well, the book is, oh, I have a free gift for your- Why don't we introduce the free free gift to our listeners today? Yes. The free gift for your listeners is a free download of the book. Great stuff. And uh, if they'd like a hard copy, they can buy it at Amazon. It's it's on Amazon, but I am offering a free gift and um, we'll post the link in the show notes. uh, We'll just do it under brandaid.com forward slash free gift. Okay. And Brandaid is with an E, -E B-R-A-N-D-A-I-D-E com forward slash free gift and um so if your listeners go to that i'd be happy to share a, a free copy of the book with them and i hope it's helpful that's wonderful stuff i mean there's a lot of helpful stuff here and that's on the book side and appreciate the gift and as as you say and yes we'll have everything in the show notes what about working on the trademark side of things uh, both either us or you know right around the world what's the way to contact you or find you for that uh probably the best way is let's see oh is uh, just reach out to me uh, at cheryl at hodgsonlegal.com H-O-D-G-S-O-N legal.com or I'll give you the other one. It's easier probably. Cheryl at brandaid.com. There you go. Brandaid is your own brand or the brand you've been developing there as yes. well, right? Yeah. Yes. That's great stuff, Cheryl. Uh, I like to end these shows with one and you've given a lot of wonderful advice here, but one thing you can give to a business owner that's growing their company right now with a view to possibly selling it someday. Obviously your expertise in the trademark area, probably a, a go-to spot. So is there one sort of one sort of strategy that you'd encourage listeners to think about as they are growing their own business? Um, yeah, is um, realize that it's a process. It's not, you know, an overnight thing, and you're going to hit the bumps in the roads. But um, when it comes to protecting your assets, it's everything we've already said. I really think mindset is important. It's not about thinking you have to spend a lot of money and ultimately, and be litigious, but you do have to be vigilant and take care of yourself and your your assets, you know, because it's your business. It's what you're spending your life's force and energy on. And ultimately, in this field in trademarks, it is a representation of your brand. And your brand is how do you connect with the hearts and minds of your consumer? How do they reach you? How do they know you? How do they respect you? Why do they want your product or service? And the registered trademarks you have are the messengers for that 
messengers. So they're your messengers. So, you know, choose them wisely and take care of them. Uh, that's great stuff. Great advice there. Uh, as you say, how you connect with your consumers. Cheryl, thanks so much for connecting with our listeners today. A wonderful <laughs> episode. I love working with you in all the different ways that we do. And I look forward to continuing that relationship as well. We'll have everything in the show notes. And uh, as I say, if anybody is interested, please do feel free to reach out to Cheryl and pick up a copy of the book. It's invaluable as you're developing your own brand. Cheryl, thanks so much for being on the show today. And I look forward to next time. Absolutely. Thank you so much. I enjoyed it. Thanks for listening to The Millionaire's Lawyer. Please subscribe and rate on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. To get your business millionaire assessed and to access the wide variety of resources that we offer in addition to this podcast, go to jpmcavoy.com. That's jpmcavoy.com.